I attempted to do something this week uh, to my shame that I've never done before. I should have done it before. It was that to, to get through the whole book of Revelation in one sitting. And um, I suppose I did it years ago when I was preparing to preach a series on the book of Revelation and Daniel all in the same year. But this week I sat down and tried to do it again and I kept getting, I got through chapter 15. So get some street cred for that, right? So, <laughs> but I kept getting stuck in chapters four and five and I kept thinking about the, the company around the throne. And of all the hymns in Christendom, especially in our era, that, that just might be sung during that time would be holy, holy, holy. Uh, and it'll be a, uh, a spontaneous combustion of a hymn from the hearts of God's people. Um, so th- praise God for preparing our hearts for his word this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to head back to our study. I, I trust that the last few weeks together, as we launched from... Deuteronomy chapter 6 into understanding what having a word-saturated home. I hope that was a blessing from God's word to you. I trust that the discussion of God's word and the application, the study discussion and application of God's word has become um, more of a reality in your life, personally, whether you live, you have a home by yourself or whether you have roommates or whether you have a family. And I um, had someone in walk in this morning and they said thank you for the suggestion of having the box of Bible verses and this grandma had been walking this box of Bible verses around the home uh, utilizing it in the lives of her grandchildren throughout the week as they visit her home as a great blessing to hear that whatever practical applications you took from that I trust that the scriptures are going to continually become more and more of the centerpiece of your home as we seek to walk with God, okay? In all those ways we discussed. For 2020, we sought to do a book study in 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter. Many people say actually his third, but his second inspired letter that he wrote to the Corinthian people. For those of you who are guests, we seek to study one book at a time here, and sometimes we'll take a whole year to do it. Try to go as treated as appropriately as necessary uh, for our congregation. So, Second Corinthians is that book. We had mentioned that the first portion of this letter, its purpose, is to remind the Corinthian people that the only way that there can be a ministry, a local church, that maintenances itself by integrity, is to make sure that we have uh, continually developing relationships in the church Uh, a church cannot minister with integrity unless the relationships inside that church are maintenanced by god's word we looked at chapter 1 verses 12 to 24 and we really unpacked that line by line verse by verse explaining how paul desired to maintenance his relationship with the corinthian church where there was this little component of that church that had criticized him for being fickle you remember that? Paul's not finished yet in addressing this matter of ministry integrity, which requires solid relationships. He moves now into the first 11 verses of chapter 2, uh, talking about 
this particular proposition. Maintaining ministry integrity includes forgiving those who have offended us. Now you notice I didn't use the word, the personal pronoun you at the end of that sentence. Because what Paul's addressing here in the beginning part of chapter 2 is one individual who had offended the whole of the church. This individual was leavened that had affected the whole lump. This particular individual had been set apart from the church for the purpose of the purity of the church. We're going to find out here that this person had come back to the Lord in fellowship, but then the Corinthian church was a pretty significant portion that didn't want him back in the fellowship because they couldn't get over the extent of this person's offense. So Paul is going to look a little bit deeper and wider in his communication with the Corinthian church about their, their need in Christ to receive this individual back into fellowship. So the proposition again says maintaining ministry integrity includes, it must include, forgiving those who have offended us. So Paul continues to be deeply burdened that the gospel of Christ continues to have its way in the flock and throughout the community in Corinth. He steps up to the plate again to pinpoint yet another area where the Corinthian church had an opportunity to collectively experience God's grace in a very practical way. Notice with me first a phrase in verse 10. Verse 10 says, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes. And that prepositional phrase really is the foundation for this whole opportunity the Corinthian church had to forgive. In the presence of Christ. In the presence of Christ. Again, this is the key phrase where Paul finds his personal ability to forgive this individual. And he wants the body to now find the ability to receive this truly repentant soul back into the church the same way. Just a bit later in our book study, we'll unpack the most concise one-verse passage on the nature of forgiveness in all of Scripture. Over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's see this one verse. To understand the phrase in verse 10, we have to understand verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Before we read the verse and remind ourselves a bit of its truth, we should remember that this verse explains the nature of our ability to forgive and be forgiven personally, and then corporately as a church family. Paul says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There was this divine legal exchange. In Christ, we receive the righteousness of God, 
because God made Christ to be our sin on the cross. That's the nature of forgiveness. Paul says, you go back to chapter 2, that I'm able to forgive, and your ability to forgive and to receive back is done in the presence of Christ. You know Pauline literature, for those of you that have been saved for a while. Paul always lived his life as a daily living sacrifice before the Lord. Everything he did and everything he said, he knew that he did it and said it in the presence of God in Christ. For the church to be able to receive this individual back into fellowship, they needed to understand, go back, if you will, to the moment that they were placed into Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit at the moment they were born again. No one is ever really able to receive back anyone in forgiveness unless they first remember that they've been overwhelmingly forgiven. Remember back what Christ has done for you and that undeserved divine grace? Remember at the moment you were born again, you certainly knew that you were the greatest of all sinners that ever existed. Remember that moment when you turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ, that overwhelming peace and joy that came into your soul because God at that moment imputed the righteousness of Christ. He legally reckoned it an account to your soul for now and eternity. The very nature of forgiveness is found in Christ, and in Christ we're forgiven. And since we're vested in Christ's likeness, then we must forgive as he forgave. And we must maintain integrity to forgive individually and corporately. You may be wondering, is this what Paul did in addressing Philemon about Onesimus? Certainly another small letter about forgiveness. I would say no. Because this situation in 2 Corinthians 2 is not apples to apples in comparison with the church that was meeting in Philemon's home in relationship to Onesimus. Onesimus never knew Christ when he lived and served Philemon. He later came to know Christ as his Savior through Paul's witness in Rome. So Paul's asking the church that met in Philemon's home to receive back Onesimus, who's now in Christ, who was not in Christ before. Nonetheless, as we go back to chapter 2 in our context today, we know that chapter 2 addresses an acquired skill that the grace of God develops in us as a whole body, a whole church that is able to forgive and to receive back a saint into fellowship after they've been removed from fellowship for a sin that had affected the whole flock. I'm going to take a moment here to read all 11 verses. Would you join me as we do this? And then we're going to look at three particular aspects in relationship to um, forgiveness together. Paul says here in verse 1, but I determine, and by the way, really the, the grammatical breakup here between the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, that our English Bibles give us is really not um, a great breakup. Really, he's segueing here into how Christian relationships are developed. 
So this is really items in a series. So really verses one through four is somewhat of a segue or a conclusion of chapter one as we head to understanding the nature of forgiveness here in verses and the practical application of forgiveness in verses five through 11. But he says this, but I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful. He's just speaking here broadly of all the different ways that Paul had to confront the Corinthian church about how they had walked away from uh, righteous living and how they had responded well. And uh, there's just this interchange of a shepherd's heart to a flock that was hurting, then healed, then hurt again and needed to heal again. This is the very thing I wrote to you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be made the joy of you all, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So as he discusses this desire for them to continually respond to what he wrote, and that word wrote is there twice in those four verses, as he tests the waters of their spirit-filled condition, if you will. He's making sure that they're responding to the word of God. And they had been responding, and there was a good interchange, but the work wasn't done yet. And boy, isn't that true? The work's never done in any of our hearts. (laughs) Right? None of us have arrived. We know Paul emphasized that in Philippians chapter 3. The work's always being done. And he says, you know what, we've got another issue to address here in relationship to receiving this one back. So three things I would like you to write down if you're a note taker, or three things I'd like you to remember in relationship to forgiveness. I'd like to talk a little bit about, first of all, the process of forgiveness. The process of forgiveness in this text. And secondly, I'd like to talk about the purpose of forgiveness in this text. And then I would like to conclude with the person process, purpose, and person of forgiveness in the passage that's before us. A favorite author of mine said this, when I fail to forgive you, it's because I've exaggerated the offense against me, and I have minimized my offense against God. Now think about that corporately in relationship to receiving this particular person back in the fellowship who's gotten his heart right with God. When we, I'll just change the pronouns in this quote, when we fail to forgive, it's because we've exaggerated the offense against us. And we have minimized our offense against God. This is the very reason Paul was compelled to confront the Corinthian church on the matter of corporate forgiveness. They had gone through the process of setting this individual apart from the church, but they were unwilling to receive him back because they were exaggerating his offense against them and minimizing their own offense against God. So Paul commends them for their obedience, often in his writing, There's just another thing to work on right now. 
He says here in verse 5 and 6, as we've already read, that this particular individual had influenced all of them. You see that phrase here in verse 5, in order not to say too much to all of you, and then verse 6 at the final prepositional phrase there in verse 6, by the majority. This was a person who had offended all, and so the majority had voted to relieve him from his membership at the church because of his offense. This was a communal decision by the word of God that involved a process to be sure. Again, we're not completely confident as to who the individual in specific here is that had been put out of the church. But we know that the majority had voted him out because of his unconfessed sin. And we do know it's one of two people that have gone through the same process of church discipline in the church. This man is either spoken of in 1 Corinthians 5, if you want to write that down in the cross-reference of this text, it's one of two people. It's all it could be. It could be the person that was separated from the church because of his immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Or it's another individual that caused great offense to Paul on his second visit to the city. This could have been a man that was causing great division within the church by creating an anti-Paul sediment in the church, therefore adversely affecting the ministry of the word of God in the town as given by Paul because this man was attacking Paul's apostolic authority and he had gained quite a crowd in the church. I've investigated personally this week some 18 authors regarding who this particular individual may be. And this is what I found, right? That those 18 authors are completely divided as to who he really is. But they were all united... In this, by the time Paul writes to the Corinthians, this man was truly repentant, and the Corinthian church was struggling to receive him back into fellowship, and Paul knew this man was hurting because of it. So this once spiritual rebel, now repentant, sinner, desired fellowship of the church, but the assembly was exaggerating the offense against them, and again, minimizing their own offense against God. The church in Corinth was not following through with the right process that they had started. Still, for those of you who are new to Christ, there is a process that may be a bit confusing to you at this point in your Christian walk, but it is necessary for the church to maintain spiritual purity. There are processes that God has inscripturated for us to help us deal with one another when our good hearts go bad. And by the way, whose heart that's good today could go bad tomorrow? Any of us, right? Any of us, including this guy. So, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning, and let's look at how a church deals with a pastor's heart that's good that goes bad. Those of you that have known your Bibles for a while, you're very familiar with this context. 
And Paul gives young Timothy here, who's now the pastor at Ephesus, some instruction on how to deal with elders in the assembly whose good hearts go bad. He says in verse 19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So it's very simply, if someone in the church believes that my heart's gone bad, what's their responsibility? To go get two or three people who are unfamiliar with the situation to come and have a conversation with me. Right? Not people who are familiar with the situation. This is kind of like a spiritual ecclesiastical jury. These are people who are unfamiliar with the situation, but part of the body who can come and sit and, and listen to whatsoever things are true. So Paul's telling Timothy here, you're an elder at Ephesus, you're the first among equals. If someone has an accusation against you, stop them and tell them to go and get, or maybe you can gather with them three people who are completely objective and bring them back, and then maybe four or five of you can have a conversation at that point, because the accusation needs to be heard. Real simple. This is with pastors. Verse 20, those who continue in sin, if the pastor or elder continues in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain those principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit or partiality. God is impartial when it comes to his justice. And he's asking the church, as best as it can, by the word of God, to remain the same in how they deal with one another. Impartially, even the pastor. There's a process for confronting sin in the local church. So again, outlined here is a process how a pastor who falls into sin and remains unrepentant can have his sin addressed and be removed from the church if his heart remains stubborn. His removal then is a warning to the whole church as to their own ability to fall into sin, and it acts as a way to keep the church pure from waywardness. You can write down here, many of you probably already have it in the margin of your Bibles, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. There's a very similar process that's also given to us in Scripture and how we deal with one another even if you're not a pastor. Right? If you're offended, go to that person who offended you. And if you could not win that relationship back, take two or three witnesses, right? Matthew 18, 15 to 17. And if it doesn't work, then take it to the whole. Why? The whole purpose. The whole purpose is restoration of a relationship to God and restoration to fellowship. The whole purpose why we go through a process with a pastor or another saint in the church is to restore them to their walk with God and to their walk in the church. Unfortunately, the flock in Corinth was giving this now restored soul to God a stiff arm regarding being restored to the church and fellowship. Well, why? Why were they doing that? Well, I'll state it for the third time. When we fail to forgive, it's because we've exaggerated the fence against us. 
and we've minimized our offense against God. This can be the reality for any of us in this local church. But we must remember that forgiveness requires a process, and it's okay. Now, what happens if you talk to me and I get my heart right after the first conversation? The two or three witnesses and coming to the flock never happens. What happens when you sit down and talk to each other about offenses? And it's restored in that first conversation. The conversation's over. Praise God, right? Relationship restored. You folks as a church really do a great job of this. And I really do believe that the disciple-making culture here is giving way more and more to day-to-day relationships where there's more normal conversations about times of offense. And so it's more normal to talk about how to fix it because we're always walking through life's natural rhythms together. Does that make sense? Having the hard conversation is always an easier conversation when you're always conversing. But nonetheless, these are hard conversations to have and necessary to have, and it involves a process. Secondly, this morning, there's purposes behind why we forgive and why we restore people back to fellowship. John Bunyan said this, To be saved by grace supposeth that God hath taken the salvation of our souls into his own hand. And to be sure, it is safer in God's hands than ours. The church of Corinth had taken the forgiveness of this man into their own hands and had forgotten the comprehensive nature of this man's forgiveness at the hand of God. Throughout the passage, Paul lists various reasons why restoration to fellowship must be done when someone has truly righted their heart with God. I want to list four of these for you in this passage this morning that we've already read. Four purposes as to why we forgive. Number one, in verse five, so the sorrow of the church that it had experienced could be fully put in their past. The true sorrow the church had experienced at the hand of this individual could be put in the past. God doesn't, underst- God doesn't desire his church family to continue in sorrow over unconfessed sin. His desire is restoration after confession and then progress. The sorrow among the flock had been lingering too long. So long that, that they were actually beginning to enjoy the sorrow as a lifestyle. And that doesn't make for a happy flock, does it? (laughs) Number two, verse six. So the church would trust the process had fulfilled its purpose. Remember, they did this together. The church needs to trust the inscripturated process and the goal of the process, which is restoration and joy. Number three, verse seven. So that the person disciplined would be encouraged 
by the flocks forgiveness and restoration. Paul says here, so that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. It's a powerful word there. It's again to bring him along, put your arm around him, and walk with him again. It's really verse 2 of Galatians 6. Right? If you find a brother overtaken in a fault, you are spiritual, talk to him, have a conversation, confront him with the word. Why? But be careful, lest you also be tempted. Do it in the spirit of meekness and gentleness. Verse 2, bear him along and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. This is, this is really the heart of Christ in the whole matter, right? He needs to be comforted. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by unnecessary or excessive sorrow. Don't leave him out there. <laughs> Bring him in. And walk together with him as if the infraction against you never happened. Verses 8 and 9, number 4 so that the church could be trusted in relationship to its obedience to the word of God. Paul's very, very clear here in verse 8. This is, a, this is a sobering moment for him in relationship to how the Corinthian church heard and obeyed the word of God. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, go through these verses again and underline every time he uses the word wrote, He's testing their willingness to surrender to the inspired word of God. So that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. So the church could be trusted in its relationship to the obedience of God's words. This is a fascinating couple of verses to me in this regard. Verses 8 and 9. What do verses 8 and 9 say of any church that dodges their responsibility to obey the Lord in relationship to church discipline? Church discipline is not a process that's embraced by many churches today. It's a lot easier to have someone just dis dismiss themselves from the church regardless how they've offended an individual or not responded to the process well. And they've been leavened in that lump and they just walk away and the pastor says what? You know, sometimes we just need a backdoor revival. Praise God that brother or sister's gone. Now we can move on. Right? Well, Paul's saying here, not at the expense of the process. Not at the expense of the purposes behind the process. There's a lot of churches, I trust grace is not there, I hope we never will be there, that won't embrace the process of church discipline. And therefore, I really believe what Paul strongly inferring here is that what other part of the word of God can you be entrusted with if you're willing not to obey all of it it's kind of like he's saying there's that domino that falls right you push the first one and then boom 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 boom, boom right
One author explains that Paul's love for the Corinthians and this repentant soul is deeply expressed in these 11 verses. He states that love indeed puts others first, verses 1 through 4. Love always seeks to help others grow, verses 5 and 6. And love is always forgiving and encouraging in verses 7 through 11. It's like he's saying what John said in 2 John 6 is he defined what love is. This is love. I only know if you really love God if you're willing to follow his word. This is love, that you obey my commandments. Jesus said the same thing in the Gospel of John, didn't he? I'll know that you love me if you obey me. The process is a purpose. It's fourfold as per our sermon this morning in these ways. Love is seen in the obedience of the Corinthians to begin and to continue the process. Now love must be expressed in the purposes as to why they must finish the process. So really, the process is the test. Being willing to go through the process and begin it, maintain it, and conclude it is really is the test of our love for God first, and his word second, and the soul that's being restored third. But we finish with the good news, the person of forgiveness in verse 10. We mentioned this really to be the foundation of the whole purpose and process but the one whom you forgive anything, I also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it really as an example to you for your sakes in the presence of Christ. You guys can see if you know the book of Philemon pretty well. I'd said before the nature of the two situations are different, but yet Paul's heart for both Onesimus and this repentant sinner are the same. I have found my ability to forgive this individual because of 2 Corinthians 5.21. I remember how I was divinely forgiven by the undeserved grace of God the moment I was born again. I can just see Paul remembering back to that time of salvation crisis in Acts 9, right? When Christ appears to him, and he goes blind and is reminded of his sin in the presence of the purity of the Savior. And he repents and throws his life in faith into Christ. Can you see Paul? Listen, if I was forgiven that much, certainly I can forgive this guy so I know you can too. Think about it, Corinthians. All you were forgiven before you were saved and think about all the things I've written to you in my first letter that I addressed to you that were vices, that you heard the word, you responded in so well by God's grace. I'm confident you'll do the same thing here. Why? Because the person of forgiveness is immutable. The person of forgiveness is omnipotent. The person of forgiveness knows all. He's omniscient. The person of forgiveness is impartial. He's willing to forgive you and you and you and you and me. Regardless of your last name, your socioeconomic status, 
the level of your education, God's impartial. God is able to forgive in Jesus Christ, so therefore we forgive. The Corinthian church needed to know there was a soul once disciplined that had been restored to the person of his forgiveness, Jesus Christ. They need to know that Jesus is the person that would never let this man go, so they needed to receive him back. Remembering as I'm studying this text in relationship to the person of forgiveness, George Matheson's famous hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Right? I rest my weary soul in thee, the person of forgiveness. I give thee back my life that I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. This person had shown the fruits of true repentance that Paul had detailed later on again beyond 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that we looked at, but in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. Paul outlines there what worldly sorrow looks like, someone that says, I'm sorry, but not repentant. They're sorry they got, got caught, right? And then he lists out there the virtues of true repentance. In verse 11, they're powerful. Paul knew this person was truly repentant. He had forgiven them in Christ, and now he's asking these folks to do the same. So we must go back to where we began by way of introduction this morning. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5.21. We must realize that Jesus remains the person of forgiveness. And why do we need to complete the process? I guess I'm going to give a fifth purpose by way of conclusion this morning. Look at verse 11. Why do we forgive? Why do I ask you to forgive in the name of the person of forgiveness? There's a purpose clause here in verse 11. The Bible says it's a, it's a reason why. It's really so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, who we are not ignorant of his schemes. An unrestored, repentant soul is still under the attack of the wicked one. The church that refuses to receive back this repentant, restored soul to Christ keeps themselves under the attack of a scheming devil. So Paul says, look, if you're not going to take him back, you guys are wide open targets. Right? Every hunter loves to go hunting in the wide open plains of Wyoming. And they can sit behind a tree and see an elk walk out at 300 yards with no obstruction in between them where that elk becomes an easy target for a high-powered rifle and a magnificent scope. That's easy prey. I can't believe I traveled all this way and the hunt was so easy. That's what Paul's saying here. You're making the hunt really easy. And we know from 1 Peter 4, 8 that the devil's always walking around seeking whom he may devour. This is the church leaving itself as open prey and also leaving this man that desires to be restored to the church as open prey. And he's, that, that, that's just not honoring God, right? It's not honoring God. So if we're going to have a ministry with integrity... 
We've got to obey the word. And this relationship needs to be restored. This relationship needs to be restored. Can I also say this? The church that's unwilling to begin the process and to sweep the sin under the carpet or to let it go, easy come, easy go, kind of soul situation, has also left themselves open as easy prey. So whether you're unwilling to start it or you're unwilling to complete it, right? we got to be careful. So, putting on our ecclesiastical armor this morning, we've gone through this process in our church. And you've been gracious to have restored any person that's gotten their hearts right with God back to fellowship. There's people in this auditorium and in this building this morning that have gone through that process and you know what it means to be graciously received as if the infraction never happened. Amen? Amen? Amen. Praise God. It's a beautiful thing when the grace of God works in that way. There's some that is still yet to be restored whose hearts have not yet gotten right with God. I hope you're still praying for them. I hope when you see them in town, right, you don't treat them as an enemy. But you love them. Ask them if they miss a walk with Jesus. Invite them back to it. And because we live in a broken world, I'm certain that this process of the going through this process is going to happen again. Right? But it's all about honoring God and honoring the person of forgiveness. My goodness, Jesus, Philippians 2, right? Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He, he left his embattlements of heaven to become that advocate. John, 1 John 3, no, 1 John 2, 2 and 3, for the whole world. I mean, if you think about it from this perspective, he came to be slaughtered for all of our sin. Think about how much he wants the church in a right way to take advantage of his sacrifice. And basically, he's saying to the Corinthian church, I've already died for it. I've already forgiven it on the cross. And now to this person, what are you waiting for? <laughs> take advantage of what I've done for you and for him and be restored and enjoy that fellowship let's pray together our father in heaven we thank you for the simplicity of this text we thank you for your heart as demonstrated through the apostle paul to us as broken people saved by grace we thank you lord that you have outlined for our fallen hearts a process we thank you for the divine purposes as to why we need to go through that process from time to time while we never forget the person of forgiveness, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.